Before I start this interview with Helena Norberg-Hodge, I do want to just say a few things. First, this is such important information for our future. So many people are upset with our world, with our governments or the corporations or the monopolies or whatever it is, the frustrations that we all have on so many deep levels on, in so many ways. If we follow the, the principles of localization, decentralization and freedom, we'll be heading in the right direction. And this is what this interview highlights. I also wanted to mention a little bit in the, in the first section, Helena talks for about 15, 20 minutes and it's so inspiring on so many deep levels. But I know there's a couple of things that many of you might want to push back against. And I did too, and I did. And so hold tight because we actually have a civil discourse about this. We discuss the differences on many different layers and why it's so hard to maybe describe the nuances that we all have, the, the more subtle problems with our situation that we're in. So I recommend that you just hold through that process, go right through the end, feel the, the entire vibration of it, and I hope that you appreciate it. Thanks for watching. Okay, welcome everybody. I am Philip J. Watt. This is Dissect Media, and I have the absolute pleasure of introducing one of my first ever guests on the podcast, or reintroducing one of those that guests, which who is Helena Norberg Hodge, an absolute champion of the people, right over the target for how we resolve so many of our local, national, and even international issues. I was originally inspired by Helena's work from the documentary, the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. And in that she talked about localization and decentralization. And I resonated immediately that it was over the target. And then I went on my own, I, I interviewed her and, and continued the interviews and sort of went on my own journey of personal and uh, sociological or activist sort of development. And then just recently over the last sort of uh, six months or so, it has just come crashing down on me again, how important it is to, uh, to respond to monopolization, authoritarianism, control, globalization, all these big issues, which sometimes have their uh, benefits and advantages, but there's a heap of disadvantages and really problematic effects within communities all around the world. And to me, it's not rocket science. You simply need to respond with decentralization, localization, and freedom instead of control. And so Helena has been talking about this and doing this work for a long time. She has written several books, Ancient Futures. Um, she'll be talking about her new book later on. And uh, it's been just a, a, an absolute gem when it comes to uh, speaking about such a critical issue. And given we've got the 2019 election in Australia coming up, a heap of dissent and disenfranchisement with the people to huge degrees. In fact, the 2018 Edelman Trust Barometer said that two thirds of Australians don't trust the government and the media. Now that is phenomenal. And we need to have an effective banded, uh, so united response in Australia against this. And we're laying it out for you guys. This is a silver platter response to what we need to do about your dissent. We need to go local, local public banks, local 
business, local food, local resources. Of course, we don't need to go so local that we have no national or international trade or anything like that, but we need to build in self-sufficiency. We need to build it in, not just in case of any environmental hiccups like uh, solar flares and um, volcanoes and bloody electromagnetic um, uh, decreases in our fields. We've got issues around the grand solar minimum coming up. There are always issues within our environment that can shift and 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 uh, have an impact on what happens in our nations um, and in, in humanity. But there's also financial issues, and this is the big one in terms of the global ec economic derivatives debt bubble and what impacts that that might have in the future because we've always been through booms and busts. So ultimately, I'll end this and we'll get straight to Helena now. We have environmental and financial issues that might that we need to safeguard and insulate ourselves against, that therefore go local food and resources, etc. But it's also great for health, it's great for education, it's great for community integration, it's great for people to get back out into nature and actually connect with each other and connect with what it means to, to uh, be a human out in the real world and not in front of the screens. So, um, and, and not only that, um, in, it, once again, it just gets people working with each other and we have more community uh, energy spirit in general. So thank you for listening to my uh, rant, Helena. Welcome back to Dissect Media. Well, I love hearing your rant. You're basically giving my talk for me, which is fabulous, because unfortunately, until now, there are still very few people who've looked at this holistically enough to sort of really get it. So, you know, a lot of people now can see there is a local food movement and they, you know, they say, sure, local, it's part of the solution, but they really are not looking clearly enough at the global system that is creating multiple crises and they haven't studied enough the evidence in terms of both traditional localized systems and in terms of the new localization experiments around the world. They haven't studied that enough to see that it is a solution multiplier. And they also need, or as part of that, to, by looking at the modern versions, they'll realize this is not about ending trade. It's not absolutely not about cutting ourselves off from others. In fact, in our organization, one of the main things that we you know, encourage, and that's part of what we do, is to encourage much more international dialogue, much deeper, better understanding of what's going on in different parts of the world. Because unfortunately, even in this era of the internet, we are not getting the information we need. So, um, you know, for me, all of this started a long, long time ago. I just happened to have been, um, have come from an international background. So I ended up, my family was Swedish, English, German. I, I grew up in Sweden. But I also lived in America, I lived in France, I lived in Austria and studied in Italy and Spain and Mexico. All of that led me to reflect on, at that time, what I saw as a sort of Americanization of the world. And later on, what really clarified this systemic analysis was being invited to go to a part of the world called Ladakh or Little Tibet. And this is a, a, a very remote culture, high on the Tibetan plateau, 
culturally Tibetan, Dalai Lama is his spiritual head, but it was an area that belonged politically to India, and it had been sealed off in the modern era from the mid-40s. No one was allowed to go there. So this was a very rare opportunity. I am afraid that many people who think they know traditional cultures don't realize that when they're in parts of the world where Christian missionaries came in and now everybody's called Mary and Joseph or whatever, you know, they don't realize the huge destruction that was wrought when people were robbed of their self-respect and of their ability to focus on producing their own needs as a priority. In, you know, for hundreds of years now, the expansion of, of the West meant that people were, were you know, pulled away from self-reliance, from producing a diversity of things for their own needs to producing monocultures for export, which immediately created dependence on unknown forces and created tremendous insecurity because you never knew what you were gonna get for your product. And then, of course, you know, all of this started anyway with slavery. And in the modern era, that actual enslavement translated into a type of enslavement through debt. So um, I feel extremely privileged to have the opportunity to go back. In many cases, you'd have to go back 500 years in the world to see what people are like when they are free, when they are living close to the land, when they're dependent on animals, on plants, on trees, on other people that they have a relationship with, that they have a deep connection to. When they have that, they are infinitely more secure. They have also multiple skills. Everybody knew how to build a house, how to grow food, how to prepare it, how to store it. They, everybody could sing and dance and make music. They were multiple, had multiple skills. And I think in retrospect, I see how damaging it's been for us to become these one-dimensional people, totally identified with the one job that we do. And you know, part of it also is that in a healthy economy, we don't spend our whole life sitting still in front of a screen or in front of a typewriter. You know, we actually move, we use our bodies and we are outside a lot of the time. So many of these things we have not been allowed to look at honestly because we've been on a track where big business from the beginning of slavery have tried to tell us all the time that we have been, been you know, beneficiaries of progress. And that means that life has just been getting better and better we have people like Steven Pinker also telling us that we were always more violent. The further back you go, the more violent we were. And generation after generation, we become more peaceful, more peace-loving. It's incredibly important that we separate what has in fact been a cultural progress, a path of cultural progress from the breakdown caused by force when through the enclosures or through slavery we were pushed off the land and disempowered no longer having the social structures or the skills that we needed to survive so whether it was dickensian london 
or slums in Africa or India, that is the starting point that, that people, you know, the advocates of techno-economic centralization and progress, they point to that and tell us, look, with economic growth, with development, things have just been getting better and better. What happened is that that rupturing of social relationships and the connection to the land did create a mess, absolute mess, created illness. It was structurally linked to urbanization because in order to destroy people's ability to provide for themselves, you have to drive them away from the resources that they have knowledge about into urban centers where they're suddenly dependent on this new technology called money. So um, in creating such a mess, you can now point to the cultural genuine progress that has happened at this time of the beginnings of the modern economy. Many people were both uh, white supremacists, they, they, we, there was patriarchy, there was an intolerance of difference. You know, people were insecure and the rulers were very, very explicitly racist, bigoted, you know, white supremacists. You can go back and read the literature. And, uh, you know, in Australia, Aboriginals were hunted as animals, you know, until, you know, just a generation ago. So we can see that in terms of the general culture, there has been a definite um, change towards much greater humility, towards much greater, I would say, not only respect for other cultures, but very important towards the feminine, towards women, towards embracing the deeper, holistic, nurturing, feminine perspective. In the mainstream culture, that's been happening in a very significant way. But we really need to recognize that in terms of the economic trajectory, the economic development path, we have a straight line from slavery and destruction of local economies, destruction of self-respect till the modern day. And what's very frightening is that we very rarely hear voices that are looking at this trajectory, that understand it, it's become so big, so distant, that what's happening is that people are looking at their governments, that's the sort of ceiling, and there's more and more anger, there's more and more frustration, and mostly pointed at government. And so now, this cultural beneficial evolution is very much threatened because as people become more and more insecure, more and more disempowered, more and more marginalized, they are becoming angry at what they see as this big government bureaucracy, which they see as driven by the left and by green. They see these regulations that, that uh, squeeze them and make it difficult for them to survive. They link that to left and uh, green, and they see this huge government bureaucracy that's squeezing them for taxes and regulating them. So that is what they blame. And then authoritarian figures who come in and say, yes, we agree with you. We want smaller government. We're going to do away with all this. We want laissez-faire economics. 
and we're going to make your country great again. We're going to make you great again. We're going to grow the economy at any cost. Forget about this green nonsense. Forget about this social conscience, which is, you know, taking away from you. And, you know, if there's anybody to blame, it's the other, it's the immigrant, it's the outsider. And in this climate, what I'm witnessing is that, you know, this genuine shift in values that had occurred is more and more threatened as more and more people feel threatened and marginalized. And I've seen in my own native country of Sweden, you know, this racism rearing its ugly head, which literally was not there when people felt empowered and in charge of their lives and didn't feel threatened. That was nowhere to be seen. I've seen it in Ladakh, I've seen it in Bhutan, where people, when they were secure, when there was no unemployment, um, they didn't feel threatened by outsiders, not at all. They welcomed outsiders. They were interested in difference. Now, um, in most countries that I know, and I'm still working very internationally, I'm afraid there is a pattern, uh, and it is a pattern towards voting for these authoritarian and uh, for demagogues who have you know, no respect for the natural world. And it's, it, we're moving in a very frightening direction. So partly what I'm trying to say to people is, please help us get the word out that the same economic policies that are responsible for creating climate change, mountains of plastic, ecocide, you know, insect life, the statistics of, you know, the death of species is very frightening. It's not just climate change alone, but we're talking about major environmental damage. The same policies that are driving that are creating so much insecurity, creating so much poverty, such an impossible situation where, you know, whether in Delhi, in Sydney, in Beijing, in Stockholm, we what we have is a pattern where supporting global monopolies, which is what this economic system is doing, is completely linked to mega urbanization. And in the mega urban centers where jobs are being concentrated, they were already concentrated in cities with industrial development, but in the information age, in the service economy, they're being concentrated even more. We were told that computers would allow us to decentralize. No, they have actually been more a tool for centralization and mega urbanization. Just recently, just today, I saw statistics about how around the world, the house prices near where jobs are, are completely out of reach, impossible. Young people now starting out on a career are in an impossible situation. They can't afford the housing near where the jobs are. And if they try to pay for that rent or buy that house, they're gonna be working more than 80 hours a week. And of course, both husband and wife, and even then they'll be running like, like hamsters in a, in a cage. 
So, you know, the other thing that's going on is that the stress of this is creating an epidemic of anxiety, depression, and even suicide among young people. And it's worldwide. Ladakh, this ancient part of Tibet that I got to know, suicide was something that happened maybe one in a generation. Now it's one a month at least, and it's young people. So we're talking about a very, very serious trend. And what I saw in Ladakh was very clearly the systemic, both the systemic drivers and the systemic effects that created almost overnight unemployment, insecurity, and with it, violent conflict between people who had lived peacefully side by side for more than 500 years. There had never been group conflict. But after a decade of the modern economy coming in in the name of development, the scarcity of jobs, the centralization of power led to violent conflict. And I also want to mention that in many parts of the so-called third world, it is responsible for driving up population. Because what's happening is this package of modern economic growth comes in with so-called democracy and people, diverse groups, racial groups, cultural groups, language groups, want their leaders in power so that they will get the jobs. Because when you create a centralized system of scarcity that only doles out a few livelihoods, you create this situation of divisiveness and conflict. And so the religious leaders, the regional leaders are telling people, whatever you do, don't control population, increase your numbers so that we will get the vote and we will be in power. Um, so I actually, I guess I would blame almost all our serious social and environmental crises on the centralizing, globalizing economic system. And I would argue that what we need is a very clear message of the need for what I would call radical holism. A radically, you know, we have to be committed to seeing the big picture. We have to really look beyond the theater of left-right politics to see what's really going on. And we have to see that more clearly. We have to be willing to search for an analysis, for information beyond our own country limits. And, and it's, it requires work. It requires active work because the dominant narrative is more and more created by big money. Big money is shaping the agenda, shaping the story, shaping the narrative. And it's, it's very, very frightening because you can see everywhere without looking at that bigger picture and system that we're seeing this fracturing where suddenly, you know, I just heard yesterday the term neurodiverse, talking about Greta, the young girl from Sweden. So now, you know, you're starting to get this focus on a politics of identity. Uh, we must care for the neurodiverse. We must care for the gender, you know, fluid people. We must care for the animals above all else, you know. We must become vegan. 
climate change, you know, it's the only issue and, and framed by big money. The climate discourse points the finger at the individual consumer. The individual consumer trapped in a system where our own taxes are doing everything to increase CO2 emission, which includes $5.3 trillion subsidizing the fossil fuel industry right now. So, and then we're told that, oh, we're not gonna go on holiday, we're not gonna drive our cars, when most of us to survive for our jobs are dependent on the car because we have almost no investments in public infrastructure that would be really beneficial. So the, the whole framing and the discourse is trapping people. And of course, again, many people who are struggling to survive become more and more angered at environmentalists when they, when they don't see the bigger picture, they see that as a threat rather than the system behind it. So I would say we need radically holism, a radically systemic, big picture analysis. And I'm talking about what I call big picture activism. We need to understand that information is actually hugely important, but a holistic picture, not some few narrow statistics within a narrow frame. We are desperately in need of understanding what's going on. And part of that understanding, I believe, is thoroughly informed and from a global point of view, we will be far kinder. So I'm talking about radical kindness. The kindness is, once we understand this system that has been spinning in a certain direction towards supporting monopolistic global players and marginalizing the majority of people, then we'll also see more clearly that there aren't really individual people to blame. We'll see there aren't really individual corporations, but rather a system where almost everybody is trapped. And I just want to say about that finally too, that you know the average CEO, if they would only listen to this message, which I do not think they will, because um, the main problem is blindness, it's not ill will, but they are more blind than virtually anybody because they are there in this cutthroat destruction of jobs. So the mega mergers mean that even if you're Exxon, you're not big enough, you have to link with Mogul, and then there's one CEO. So everybody's job is on the line and everybody's running faster and faster to survive. And in the global monopolies, their influence on the rest of the world, they don't even get to really look at it. And we're not doing our job delivering on a silver platter, a very clear holistic message, which says, look, this is what's happening. Your job is on the line too. And this system is creating massive problems. Help us to stop the madness, the first thing would be to push the pause button on further global deregulation. And I think, you know, I do believe that um, people generally are not happy with this system. People generally realize there's something fundamentally wrong. And I just think if we can get a clearer analysis out, then we do have a real chance for reversing things in a systemic way. 
in another perhaps four or five years. But we need to focus more on this education campaign. So I'm very grateful for what you're doing. My pleasure and really well said. I will push back on a couple of things in a moment, but you holistically summed it up amazing. And I think speaking to that edgy feeling internally that um, people are feeling, I've spoken about that as being a collective existential crisis because the meaning has gone out of life. The connection to self, the connection to family, to friends, to community, to environment, to solar system, to bloody reality at large and beyond, it's, uh, it has been lost through a very materialistic and consumer ba uh, consumerism-based system. And that is, uh, that is core people uh, and build and built conflict into the system when it should be more coherent in terms of how they understand their inner connection with reality. But you've just unpacked so many things. I will touch on a little bit on it. There is, of course, the imperialistic agenda of humanity. And as you mentioned, um, particular cultures, it was always going to happen. It was inevitable. It was going to happen eventually. And it did happen the way it did happen. It could have happened worse. It could have happened better. And regardless, it was we are where we are right now, and we have to have like a response to that, don't we? We we have to understand that. Yeah, we're still young. We're still babies. I don't look at humanity as an advanced species by any stretch of the imagination. I think that once we start cooperating and uh, and and work out how to really um, uh, move forward in honourable, healthy, happy, um, and heroic ways as a species as well as individual uh, individuals but, and individual cultures and nations. And I don't have a problem with all those things. I think it's fine um, to be more, you know, connected to different ideologies and behaviours and ethics and all that sort of stuff. That's absolutely fine. But ultimately, we are a human family and we need to start behaving uh, uh, like it to really advance ourselves into the 21st century. Um, the I really would like to mention when you, set, when you talked about the... Um, the uh, appreciation and respect for different subcultures or demographics like women and um, other people who identify in different ways. Absolutely. And I think the next step to that, instead of looking at from individual different, you know, like it's uh, these, these types of demographics have been rorted by the system or rorted by the people in power, etc. We now need to look at it from the largest perspective possible, which is that we're all being royally stuffed by this system. We're all experiencing an existential crisis. We're all um, uh, losing our skills and connection to different layers of reality and being a human and connection to nature and all that sort of stuff. And that's the unification principle that we can all unite on. We can understand that some people have had it better. Sure, I'm a white privileged male in Australia and I, and I recognize uh, and appreciate and, and, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. However, um, I was still I still grew up with depression and went through a lot of pain and suffering and despair as a as a young adult and an adult. Um, hence, going into uh, the sort of services I provide, which is hypnotherapy and, and other types of services, because I learned to care for self, and then now I have an obligation to give back. But if we do focus on that, that is our unification strategy. Um, and certainly, you're right. Um, there are certain layers of how 
uh, natural and organic and free and and normal it was for tribal cultures or less developed cultures or less technological cultures to live um, yeah they, they might not have lived as long as in some cases allopathic medicine has been very important on, on many levels but that's gone way too far that's been monopolized as well and now we've got an absolute toxic um, medicinal and, uh, and and mainstream um, health treatment protocols and we need to go back to plant-based medicines, including cannabis and hemp, which I'll get to a moment. But really, is is more quantity of life better if we're uh, we're not having the same quality of life? And I think that's up to each individual one, each individual to judge. And that's how I sort of summarise the. Um, I do think you should um, also look at some of the statistics where people are questioning whether we're actually living longer. In fact, now. In the United States, they're saying this generation may be you know, the first one that's going to be dying younger than parents. Mm. But also, you see, those studies that were more honest about what happened, they see that, um, yes, infant mortality has been reduced with allopathic medicine. But if you read my book, Ancient Futures, you would also have a different approach to that. You would see that people living in large intergenerational communities, the loss of one child was not as much of an incredible tragedy as it is for us, cut off, living in our nuclear families and feeling much more intensely dependent on a few people. I, I, it's a very, it's risky of me to address this in a very brief way because I realize it can sound incredibly callous and it could be very hard for people to understand what I'm saying. But I really hope people will read my book because I deeply experienced that. And, and that, the fact that my friends who lost a child, I was just amazed at, you know, I think how, how much less they suffered than my Western friends. Well, that's a that's a philosophical and uh, a spiritual perspective too as well because once again we're experiencing this existential crisis and we look at the cycle of life and death much different to many of the yeah. the old religious and spiritual type traditions yeah. absolutely a bit yeah yeah oh, yeah I was, was, was going to say that ultimately we are experiencing very uh, widespread pandemics of what I call the three S's sickness stress and sadness. And, uh, and we really need to take that bloody seriously. And that's why localization and reintegration of communities is so super important. Now, just a quick mention on, um, I, want, I want to unpack radical holism in a moment, obviously, uh, but I, I just want to couple of, touch on a couple of other things. Never ending growth is impossible. We need to start thinking about how we are more sustainable in general, both on an individual, collective and national all the way levels, of course. Um, in terms of climate change, there is a, a huge debate about this. And I will just say, I will add this because I know the audience are more aligned to the idea of grand solar minimum, meaning less intensity of sun, more cosmic rays and dust and particles getting into the environmental um, area of our planet, changing the climate. Climate's a nat climate change is a natural cycle. Also, the weakening electromagnetic fields of our planet that is no doubt affecting our planet as well. Um, whether or not CO2 is actually a toxin for plants or not, and what the real levels are, that is still open for debate in my view. Um, however, what I will say is that we are polluting our planet ridiculously, and, I, and regardless if we can control the change of the climate or not, which I don't think we can to a great degree, 
But regardless, we are absolutely shitting in our own nests. It's a, a tragedy. We're using all these oil-based plastics and um, all the pollution and all the, the whole lot, the toxic to hydrocarbons and all that sort of stuff. There is no doubt we've got to pull our heads in when it comes to that, um, that bloody level because we are doing it. And we can shift that very simply by things that we're going to talk about in a moment. Now, let's get back to... Uh, and I just wanted to, one more pushback, Kalina, and I'm only doing it because I know the audience will be thinking it because there are very there are nuances when it comes to immigration and the flood of immigration and the integration aspects of immigration. I'm happy with multiculturalism. I come from a multicultural country. We are built out of immigrants. However, there, are, there needs to be intelligent policy when it comes to immigration, and that is super, super important, especially even if you've got a huge portion, like Australia, half the Australian population or more are very, very concerned about immigration, and their concerns need to be discussed, debated, um, addressed for how we move forward. That is super important from my point of view. Now, let's move on to your radical holism. What does this mean? I'm liking it because I'm, I look at life from a holistic view. I did introduce this discussion when it comes to public banking, um, public, uh, um, uh, sorry, local business, um, local food, and local resources. We can at least give, give ourselves the crops, the, uh, the sufficiency of survival locally, regard, regardless of what's going to happen locally. Uh, financial and environmental impacts in our future. There could be something very soon. It might take years, it might take decades, who knows? But it's very intelligent for us to at least prepare for that. You don't just go and lock your door when a robber's at your front door. You make sure you lock your door in general. And so you've got to prepare for the the, the robbers of environmental and financial impacts that could affect our lives. And if we have the capacity to take care of our food and our resources we are going to be much much better off so how do you see this radical holism actualizing on the ground what are you talking about there well i mean partly i'm saying that you know i've been trying to insist for years that every situation every analysis in terms of what we're against and what we're for needs to always be looking through both the social and ecological dimension. You know, how is this affecting people? How is it affecting the planet? And of course, once you're really holistic, you realize that what we do to the planet, we do to ourselves, to our health, to the air. And I do just want to say that again, you know, you sort of said it, but when you look at the impact of fossil fuels across the board, whether CO2 emissions, whether plastics, whether pesticides, a whole stream of products and a centralization of power. The wars in the Middle East, and basically both world wars, we have to understand that, you know, we have to rapidly move away from our dependence on oil. And in these climate agreements, they don't even mention the word fossil fuels. They talk about carbon, having created a nice tradable commodity that helps to make big monopolies even wealthier. So we really do have to look honestly at this. And as far as I'm concerned, I absolutely believe in anthropogenic climate change. I think there's no doubt that the pollution from fossil fuels will have affected climate. And I'm seeing everywhere and have warned for decades now about the extremes, you know, hot and cold. That's the actual living effect on the ground 
that you have, you know, in every year, you have more extremes, hot, cold, wet, dry, storms. So there's certain instability, exactly how that's caused and exactly how we go from here. Uh, I think we have to um, be, be clear that there is no scientific way to actually model all of Gaia with her complexity, you know, this entire biosphere with its complexity. We cannot be certain, as many scientists are, that we're going to, in this linear way, just go from, you know, one crisis to ever worse. But we do, for a multitude of reasons, we need to get off fossil fuel. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just going to quickly interject because that's really well said. I think that's exactly what this needs to be. It needs to be civil discourse. We might have a little bit of disagreement and whatnot. I think we're sort of on the same page anyway. But that's a beautiful representation of what we need within this left and right division and this divide on so many levels. There's so much toxic fighting. It's an absolute disgrace. I think we should be able to sit here and talk about it. Let me just ask you about oil-based oil based economies, though. Can't we move to plant-based economies like hemp or something very quickly? Isn't, isn't that a solution? No, I don't think that any one thing is going to be the solution because again, when you work as I have in both the so-called third world and the first world, which by the way is also part of my radical holism, I want people to try to better understand and be better informed about what's going on on the other side of the world, particularly in the so-called third world. And I've seen far too many mature Westerners say, oh, yes, yes, you know, they can't all have these technologies, but we will. And they, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the way forward is one that we, where we take responsibility for living in a way that could be multiplied by the global population. You know, if we really talk about us all being a family, well, let's really, from the beginning, look at something that would be just and equitable. So um, I think the... Um, uh, you know, we absolutely, as part of the holism, we need to look at both global north and global south. With my experience, you know, in more than a dozen countries on the ground, what is so clear is that this dominant monopolistic system that started with slavery, driving people away from producing a diversity of things for themselves to produce monoculture for export, I would argue that in many ways, the enemy is monoculture. The enemy is the belief that life can be reduced to monoculture, to one thing. And that in, at a deep level, again, through a holistic analysis, we're talking about restoring diversity at every level. And when we look honestly, we'll see that, of course, the diversity of races, the diversity of cultures, they all came about because human beings developed, evolved in specific ecosystems, specific climates, eating particular plants, having more sun or less sun, their diets, their languages, their racial features, their languages, their cultures, developed in this incredible diverse way, incredibly rich. And now what we see is ever since the inception of this modern economy, it's been an imposition of monoculture. No, no, don't produce a range of things for yourself, which are based on adapted species of animals, of plants, of grains, adapted to different um, ecosystems. That rich diversity 
both wild and agricultural biodiversity is being extinguished with every step of the modern economy. Modern fossil fuel based industrial agriculture has been based on limiting things further and further. You know, the entire world is going to drink milk from Jersey cows. You know, everybody's going to be eating golden delicious apples. And of course, it doesn't work. You know, it's not working. The monoculture on the land is an enemy to genuine sustainability and prosperity. You're pushing farmers into trying to do on far too large a scale, just one thing goes against nature. So therefore you have to buy the package of herbicides and fungicides and pesticides and the technology because the whole model is systematically removing people from the equation encouraging every individual, every business to use more energy and technology and eliminate people. So we're driving up, we're making it for the average business, the average individual, too expensive to work with people. And we have these artificially cheap energy and technological solutions. Uh, so all the time, imposing monoculture means we're talking about a system that's anti-life. We're talking about a system that's killing life. And for me, particularly through Ladakh, I came to see that this is just as destructive of genuine individual identity. I first, when I woke up to this in Ladakh and Bhutan, I saw this as being this uh, monocultural system that was through the media promoting an image of who you're supposed to be, which was white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, role models, urban consumers always. And I thought, I saw how young children around the world started uh, becoming self-conscious and lost self-respect, and then they started using dangerous skin lightening creams and, skin, uh, hair lightening, put in blue contact lenses. The advert said, oh, have the color of eyes you wish you had been born with. Well, after a while, I started realizing when I went back to the West and to my native country of Sweden, where the majority were actually white, blue-eyed and blonde-haired, I saw that there you had young girls refusing to eat to the point of death. You know, with anorexia, you were talking about an impact that was even deeper than what I saw happening in the so-called third world. And now in the meanwhile, the role models can happily be, you know, yellow-skinned, dark-skinned, black-skinned, because all the time they represent this so-called multicultural urban consumer uh, culture that we all have to belong to. So I think it's incredibly important that we are able in a nuanced way, in a holistic way, to truly respect the need for diversity. And I could imagine hemp and plant-based ways of generating energy, but on a small scale within a diversified system. One of my favorite farm examples is a Japanese farmer who on five acres is showing what could happen if Japan went local, meaning diversified small farms feeding the country? Uh, in his showing, you know, this amazing wealth and productivity, 
far more productive than any monoculture can ever be. Um, and among other things, he generates some biodiesel for, for the machinery that he does have. And within a more localized economy, you know, biodiesel could play a role. But ideally, we'd be looking at also using small-scale hydro, which is one of the most efficient ways of generating electricity. And we'd be combining, you know, multi multiple systems. Yeah, again, really well said. Um, I think you've summarized it really well. It's like a metaphor or a analogy, the industrial monoculture of in agriculture, the monoculture represents the monopolization of our world in a sense. It's the monopolization of our food, of our farms through that system. So that was really well said. Pesticides and herbicides, and all the sprays or the chemicals in, this, in the, um, the ground and the environment, it's obviously upsetting the symbiosis of our land. It's a very tragic state of affairs, flora and fauna, well out of uh, out of whack. The homeostasis is is um, so so toxic right now. Uh, we have a mass die off of, of insects and and all types of different um, uh, natural systems and the upsetting of those natural systems. There is no doubt. There is no argument about all that. And so that is something we need to really take seriously. And I think you've summed it up really well with the polycultural model of obviously permaculture. You didn't mention permaculture, but I'm, I'm assuming that uh, you're referring to that sort of system. Um, and particularly where permaculture is marrying farming. You know, originally it started off as more, you know, home gardening, but I am, am working with people who, for instance, near us in England, you know, there's this wonderful 50 acre farm, which is combining permaculture and biodynamics and yes absolutely but this sort of polyculture was also part of traditional systems and it's very much you know part of agroecology and so there are various and now you know people are talking about regenerative agriculture my big problem with that is that too often people do not have that systemic holistic view so they tend to just focus on the production side and this is very dangerous. This is another part of the whole holism argument. Just focusing on production and not looking at the whole system from the seed to the plate. Who is selling it? Who, you know, where is it being distributed? It's absolutely vital that we shorten distances and create systems that are more accountable and visible. And it's equally true as I was saying before, you know, with Al Gore and many environmentalists, just focusing on the consumer side of climate change, not looking at what happened in the last 30 years when governments all succumbed to the pressures of big business to allow them to move around the world freely. You know, free trade was about their freedom to move in and out of every economy, no regulations, no restrictions, no barriers. They couldn't deal with the diversity of languages, the diversity of of currencies all the time pressuring for homogenization. You know, one global language basically is, is what we're getting through this monocultural system. But anyway... The, and, that's a, and that's a deep fear within the um, so-called Truth and Freedom Network is not just a global language, but a global currency, a global uh, government, a global religion. This uh, globalization of our, of our world 
who are these multi-billionaires? What are their agendas? These aren't, this isn't like a, um, a necessarily um, humanistic or ethical process. It is, if it was ethical, if it wasn't, if it was really about caring for the people of the world, we would see a lot more different results on the ground. They're, they're surely aware of the studies, the research is out there. We've been able to map out what we need to do very clearly and these people in control are doing the opposite. And that is a, a very real phenomenon we have to face. Yeah, but you know, there again, I do have, you know, in terms of that radical kindness I was talking about, what I've seen is that, again, if you look at it holistically, starting with the inception, you know, which was slavery, which was pretty clearly ruthless and, as I said, racist, white supremacist, patriarchal. Even these people now are not, as individuals, maintaining those values. They are maintaining that what they're doing is necessary to employ all the thousands of people in their corporation. They are working with governments who are completely blindly wedded to increasing GDP. The invention of GDP, you know, would have been from some nerd, you know, some narrow person on the spectrum who probably had no idea. And I mean, I say, I, I mean, I say this and I, I can tell you from experience, I deal with a lot of economists who absolutely do not understand that GDP is actually a measure of failure. It's a measure of breakdown. And this is what they're holding up and pushing but they really are not being forced to look at the truth. And the, the problem is that those of us who are, you know, more aware and are at the grassroots, we have not had the trillions of dollars behind us to do the research. You know, I did small scale research in Ladakh and could show that the traditional yields were higher than the average yields in America. But, you know, now we've had this propaganda that virtually most of the human population believes in that we need large-scale industrial agriculture to feed the world. We need GMOs. We're going to have to have more satellites, more robots. And the majority of people buy into this. Now, if the majority of people buy into it, why would we assume that the people at the top who are getting paid big, fat salaries, why do we think that they are completely conscious? I see the opposite. I basically see that the higher up the ladder you go in power, in power structures, whether government or business, the blinder you become. It's convenient to be blind, but you also, what I see is a structural reason for blindness. I already noticed, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, when I would try to get in to see a minister or sometimes even a prime minister, I found that they were operating on sound bites. You know, the most I would get would be maybe a <laughs> 10 minute conversation. And I even found when I'd be interviewed uh, on radio compared to being interviewed on television, I found even the people in radio and television were quite different, were quite a different breed. You know, in television, they were far more mainstream. They were speedy and glamorous and much more caught up in the dominant narrative. And again, they were only offering me sound bites. And radio, sometimes I could have a long, meaningful conversation. You know, and as Chomsky has pointed out, 
And by the way, I studied with him and, and he's a wonderful man and he's pointed out, you know, again and again how in the dominant media, you when you're just operating in soundbites, you can't say anything. You, we have to redefine the parameters. We need a holistic framing. And that means we basically can't say anything in the dominant structure. Well, so, you said, you said yeah. that um, you said we don't have the trillions of dollars behind us, Helena, but what we do have behind us is the energetic shifts and the consciousness expansion. We are going through an interconnection on that global scale. We're building the human tribe um, on, a, on that planetary scale, the sharing information instantaneously. What a gift it has been in many ways. Also our curse at the same time because it has become now that the internet is very, very centralized as well. So that is a real issue. And, and what has resolved out of that are many echo chambers, including not just in uh, left or right or different subcultures or whatnot, but also politicians and these political class and the economic class and corporate class and all the rest of it, they sit in their echo chambers. And they a lot of these people, lower middle tiers of um, bureaucracies of government or also corporations or whatnot, even the UN, um, that they are genuinely good people who genuinely care about creating genuine results for humanity. They just, as you mentioned, don't have the information. And that why they don't have the information is because we are in an information control system controlled by multi-billionaires in the dinosaur mainstream media and also big tech from Silicon Valley. They're all push pushing their agendas. But this is why I've got a, a deep fondness for you, Helena, because a perfect example is with when I read your uh, local futures paper on the Paris Agreement and your uh, your rejection of it. I was like, wow, the, you know, you didn't you didn't get sucked into the propaganda on the information um, control, the narrative of it. You really broke that broke that down really well, and I was I was really genuinely impressed in terms of what you put forward, and, and but you did not follow the the talking points, the mainstream narrative, and you continue to do yeah. so on so many different levels. Yeah. Well, also, I just want to say that my understanding of this, and I've tried to figure out how is it that in the 70s, I was working with, particularly through, throughout Europe, you know, Germany, France, you know, all of Europe, and the US and Canada. And I was so active, you know, because Ladakh had motivated me so much, and I was going around the world every year giving public talks and interacting with the environmental movement in all these countries. And in the 70s, we were all on the same page. We were talking about decentralization. We were talking about the limits to growth. Small is beautiful was known throughout the world. And then what happened? Why did my colleagues in Sweden, in England, in America, suddenly start changing their trajectory? And they really did. And they did it very much in line with globalization. I, I knew the man, Maurice Strong, who organized the big environmental conferences in Stockholm and in Rio in 92. I knew him personally, I knew him fairly well, his wife was a friend, and I was actually invited to be part of an institute that they were starting in Colorado. And I saw that he, through mainly his wife, I would say, he became very concerned about sustainability and he wanted to talk to the people in power. So he was getting other CEOs interested in the whole environmental agenda. Well, what happened is that next meeting in 92, well-funded by a big corporation, 
no longer talked about decentralization, no longer talked about limits to growth. Now it was all about sustainable development. Maurice wrote a book with the Prime Minister of Norway called Our Common Future. It was all very, it was staying away from the problem with centralized monopolistic power in the hands of global corporations. But now it was much more about looking at symptoms. Oh yes, we really are concerned about forestry. We are concerned about climate. We are concerned about this and that. And this is again, why we have to come back to radical holism. But when I try to understand why is it that my colleagues, you know, got caught up in all this, I think the only difference really was that every year I was back on the ground in the third world. And I was actually away for six months of the year from the propaganda that was enveloping people in another view, another narrative. And I'd come back a year later and say, what? You know, how, how can this be? How can you now be promoting electric cars when before you were talking about renewable energy and decentralization? Why do you feel now that efficient, um, you know, cars is the best way forward? So people were becoming less holistic and more focused on techno fixes and all of this, of course, was very much because big money was now involved in setting the agenda, in framing the arguments, funding the environmental organizations. And so, for instance, it's maddening to me that organizations like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth have not been talking about the easiest way to reduce emissions in a systemic way. And that would be to end redundant trade and the import and export of identical products around the world. You know, right now the UK exports 20 tons of bottled water to Australia. Australia exports 20 tons of bottled water to the UK. Now, how much suffering would it entail to say, sorry, you know, as of next year, we'll keep our own bottled water and you keep yours and we will systemically reduce emissions. U.S. exports a billion tons of beef, tons of and imports a billion tons of beef. France exports wheat to Australia, Australia exports wheat to Europe. This insanity could be stopped relatively painlessly for the majority of the global population. And given enough advance notice, it would not have to lead to a collapse of even of global businesses but it would start shifting the agenda and the narrative and of course, most importantly, systemically reduce emissions. But I just want to add to that also that having seen in Ladakh that suddenly butter that had been transported for a week over the Himalayan mountains was selling in the local market for half the price of local butter. I became fascinated by this and I started looking when I was invited around the world to speak, you know, I would look at this situation. I found in Mongolia where they had 20 million milk producing animals, you couldn't even find butter and dairy from Mongolia in the market. It was from Germany. In Kenya, Dutch butter cost half as much as Kenyan butter. And then I found in Spain, you know, people were eating butter 
from Denmark, in Denmark, in French butter, in England, butter from New Zealand costs a third of butter from the farm a mile away. So I also had these experiences which really got me onto this global analysis, seeing on the ground, you know, what was actually happening. And I then went back to Sweden and I found they were sending potatoes, this is in the 70s, to Italy to be washed and put in plastic bags and then sent back again. Now this has escalated so that now it's routine. Fish is flown from Norway, from Australia, from, I mean, multiple countries to China to be cleaned or deboned and sent back again. Apples flown from England to South Africa to be washed. But I'm talking about a major, major systemic shift towards this madness. All of that would be the easiest way to reduce emissions and start creating healthier and sane economies. Yeah, well, it's, it's absolutely like, who is it benefiting? It's not benefiting the people, it's not benefiting the environment. So clearly it's benefiting the corporations. It just, it is just insanity. It really is. And it yeah. doesn't surprise me though, because when you talked about um, speaking to some of the political uh, people in political power and whatnot, the political class, um, but realistically, a lot of those people are very much on puppet strings too. We know that yeah. we know we've got deep state organisations. We know we've got deep uh, uh, monopolies behind the scenes, big money. We're talking about massive money, and that is represented by the global monetary system, the World Bank, the um, the Bank of International Settlements in uh, Switzerland. Then, of course, all the central banks around the world, which are all part of that interconnected octopus. And the monopolisation or the centralisation of banking is one of the biggest issues that we face. And there are some political parties here in Australia, the Great Australian Party, and also um, well, there's another, I can't remember who it was, but there is a focus on um, bringing back the People's Bank in Australia. And I really believe in it. And I really believe in bringing back maybe even state banks, but definitely decentralised local public banks that the, all the accounts are put on a transparent blockchain so it's all accountable, you know, it can't be scammed or the rest of it and use the process of money creation to fund the services of these projects to build localization into the system, not just with food, but all of our resources using products such as hemp. Hemp is great for the environment, um, no sprays and, and, and chemicals needed more or less. Um, plastics, fuels, I mean, we could convert our engines very, very quickly, uh, car engines, to at least to get the biofuels bio going. That's at least a, a good start that we could make to uh, take. But then we could incorporate things like the global construction set, which is an open source technology where we're not shipping you know, parts all around the world. We can fix our broken tractor part like that in our shed because we've got the, the equipment to do so. Then we've got 3D printing technologies. There's so much we, we could do very, very quickly. And I believe it fundamentally rests on local a decentralized network of local public banks. So what do you think about public banking? Well, I think public banking is an absolutely excellent idea. And I also think as part of a holistic analysis, we should be looking at how we gradually decentralize or localize more. For me, decentralization and localization are really synonymous. 
Um, and I think we need a gradual process. I think we would be starting with a national public bank or national public banks, but all the time with civic society at the table. So what we have right now is in terms of all the planning, the narrative, we've got global corporations sitting at the table, shaping the agenda for government. Now we need to get clarity from, I, I would call it particularly a new economy movement where social as well as environmental activists, where all the disenfranchised, you know, people who are suffering from unemployment, farmers who are treated with so little respect and so underfunded and struggling, you know, civic society representation at the table. And so for me, that representation and their involvement is a greater assurance for real accountability and the lack of corruption than blockchain. I'm just not sure at all that blockchain can really assure that sort of a genuine accountability and and but you know perhaps in some way i think at the same time as we would be looking at civic society shaping the national agenda we need to have representation so that we're working internationally so also alliances and networks so in my organization we've been building up this international alliance for localization very important as a way of sharing stories and information and having a clear narrative with which to pressure our governments. And one of them is that this needs to also involve international collaboration between governments. Um, and so we're looking at a very clear strategy whereby civic society pressures national governments, demands probably often replacing, in most cases, replacing representatives, have representatives who are truly representing the people. But then with that, you're looking at international new treaties that are protecting, essentially protecting society and the environment from the ravages of globalized monopolies and starting to regulate them, giving them time to become place-based so if you're going to, you know, you can either be American or Australian or Swedish, you can't just tell governments that if they don't do what you say, you go elsewhere. No, there is no going elsewhere. You're going to be within the remit of an accountable framing and visible control, which doesn't mean you can't collaborate across the world, doesn't mean, of course, that you end international trade, absolutely not, but it's this accountability, visibility, and the inability to blackmail democratic institutions. However, I also see the need for, and it's already happening, at the same time we can be demanding decentralizing power from the nation state, because there are many things that are gonna be much better done and controlled and accountable in a more decentralized structure. And so that's already to some extent happening with the local food movement, the local business alliances, some of the local financing that's happening from the grassroots. And I think we really need to spell that out. We need to support that movement. And, and for some people, it can sound a bit complex that we do need to work at the national government level, but simultaneously in many areas, decentralize power to local and regional levels. 
Yeah, and I also urge people not to be too fundamentalist. And again, it's a lack of holism. It's a lack of a systemic, process-oriented approach, where you know things get you know labeled local, and then they must be good. And you know, first of all, many things that started off local and were great, you know, start growing and growing and growing, and then they still have this great label, but they're taking advantage. Of a label which now has actually become, you know, corrupted and, and meaningless. So there's a there's a great need for a really holistic, process-oriented approach and sharing stories in meaningful ways. By the way, we have a Planet Local series on our website that I would urge people to look at, where we hold up some examples. But all the time, for us, you know, we also have to be very careful. In talking about our, you know, or my original lessons from Ladakh, because many people think that means I'm trying to say we should all go back to living like Ladakhis. But first of all, I hope you remember what I was saying about diversity. So nowhere in the world should be identical to any other, anyway. But also, um, I'm not. I'm seeing very clearly. And we don't have to go back to complete pre-industrial, you know, pre-modern technology ways of doing things. There is a way with really careful, intelligent, holistic uh, analysis that certain technologies can be used um, in in a beneficial way. Uh, but we do have to be aware of mega technologies, of mega technological systems, and the control that they've given to global. Monopolies, you know, particularly Silicon Valley,、um, and I also just want to say another thing, which is the fact that you would have thriving local economies around the world doesn't mean that any of them would be some kind of prison. And so, you know, you're in a localized economy and you can't move. No, people could choose to move. They could certainly travel and experience much richer cultural experience. But also, they might choose to move somewhere else. They might choose to become local to another place. But somehow, you know, the idea that localized economies are more—you know—they are place-based. And another aspect of this, also, that I want to stress is that, from my point of view, we don't need to be talking about no growth. Many people confuse this, you know. I mean, I've even talked to economists at the World Bank who thought, when I was questioning growth, that I didn't want productive agriculture. I was against growth of every kind, you know, just ridiculous. We have to completely differentiate between this type of GDP growth, which actually increases with pollution, ill health, which is only about commercial exchanges. So, if people's health fail and they have to go back again and again to have chemotherapy, it's good for GDP. If they stay home and plant a garden and stay healthy, that's being unpatriotic. It's bad for GDP. It's utterly criminal and dreadful that this is going on. But anyway,、um, if we、um, have, you know, help to impart this clarity. And、another aspect of it is that actually we would like to see a thriving growth, of course, of forest 
restocking fisheries, food production. We want to see an increase in food production. Because what we're doing now is supporting ways of producing food that are less productive, bring lower yields. It's absolutely the truth when you look at it honestly. In the same way, I would like to see a growth in the number of businesses. And I would like to see many small local businesses that are now doing okay, I'd like to see them grow. I'd like to see them become a bit bigger and have possibly a few more people working with them. You know, whether it's a farm, it's a family-owned restaurant, it's a, it's a health clinic. There is a need for growth at that level. But we need to have that big picture education so that once they become so big that they're no longer serving both the community and the environment in a beneficial way, we want to be looking at scale as a very important indicator. Distance, scale should be very much part of what we look at for healthy, thriving growth. And um, yeah, those are some of the more important things I wanted to say. No, no, beautifully said. I would, I would just have a couple of quick comments. I think you, you said it really well with balance, you know, like you, you don't want to just go get full local. There's nothing wrong with having um, global trade and there's certainly nothing wrong with having global agreements. I spoke to this in my book, uh, which is called uh, The Simulation. It's a non-fiction fiction. So it is a, uh, a little cheeky journey through love, lust and life and what it means to be a human at the start of the 21st century. But I do talk about um, the need to transition governments to um, even rebrand them, relabel them as services instead of governments. And we're not governing, you're providing our services. And there is an essential need to have global agreements. Absolutely. Global control, global authoritarianism. No. Global monopolization. No. Global agreements, global cooperation. Bloody oath, bring that on. In that book, I also talked about the great relocation. And what I meant by that is the decentralization of the population. And I would love to see more people move out of these urbanized environments. Many people aren't happy there. They don't want to be there. I've been talking about this for a while. I've done it myself. I know it's a bit challenging in certain ways, but I would love to see the mechanisms in place to facilitate whole families moving out into country areas and really getting involved in this expansion. As you mentioned, the right type of growth, the expansion of local uh, business and food and resources and all those sorts of things. You did talk about pressuring the government. Let's not forget that the people are the government and the people are the ones that need to be pressured here because there are a lot of people who are pissed off at the system, as you mentioned before, but we are unfocused, we are ununited, we have lost our bloody minds on so many different levels. We are absolute toxic fighting. It's like domestic violence on a bloody global stage or a national stage, an absolute tragedy. And I would love to see us um, start talking to each other and realize that what we're talking about here really is the silver platter. This is over the target. This is exactly what we need to do to resolve so many of these issues that so many different people have, especially if we encode it all under the beautiful premise of natural law with individual freedom. If we do that, we've worked out so many of the gripes people have with society. And I'll just finish on this, um, Helena. You mentioned this earlier on having honor or more or less you said said it in this is paraphrased 
but you did talk about having honour and respect for not just each other and how we interact and having that holistic, uh, that radical kindness, as you mentioned, not just to each other, but also the environment and our life forms and natural systems and all that sort of stuff, but also having radical kindness towards ourselves because we are having a serious consequence of structural sickness, of structural ignorance, of structural death even. That's a very, very sad state of affairs. And the only person that has the power to resolve this for each individual is ourselves. So regardless if we've been propagandized and indoctrinated and, and brought up with bad influences and traumatized and all these things that we all go through to varying degrees, we still ultimately have the power and the responsibility to respond to all of that in a healthy, happy, heroic and honorable way. And so I really encourage people to really take note, witness themselves. I'm talking deep I'm on a very existential, spiritual and philosophical level. Deeply, deep introspection is very much necessary for how we move forward. As Gandhi said, be the change you want to be in the, uh, be in the, see in the world but also not just, excuse me, be that change, actually translate that change into action through focused and targeted activism, which is what we're talking about here. So amazing chat. I would like to add to that because I'm a little bit worried about the way this idea, be the change you want to see in the world, has played out. It's been very much... With climate change, for instance, don't you drive your car, don't you... Uh, get into an airplane and in fact that individual behavior is going to change almost nothing it's a fraction of what would happen if we collectively at the political level changed again you know the insane trade we talked about etc etc also i want to say that people without information you know are so trapped in this scary way in which you know remember it starts with children basing their identity on the screen, on distant role models. And those distant role models always appear perfect. You know, they're having such a good time, they have more money, they're, and I am, here I am, ordinary and boring and not, you know, not cool enough. I'm seeing, you know, the most talented, beautiful young people suffering from that kind of anxiety. You know, they're just not good enough. And I see it more actually in white Western privileged culture than I do in so-called impoverished communities in the third world, where they, as I see it, the key is that in those less developed parts of the world, both really traditional like Ladakh and Bhutan, but even in the developing world, even in a place like Calcutta, generally speaking, people have much more real intergenerational community. And this sense of belonging, this sense of being part of a group, of being seen and heard and known for who you are as a human being, and basing your identity on real people, all of them have their strengths and weaknesses. So you develop a realistic sense of who you can be, who you should be, what you want to be. This is one factor that's incredibly important. And that's why I would say, yes, you know, let's start making change in our life. But I would say the first step is to connect with others. Don't try to do this alone. Don't try to be the change you alone, you know, you want to see in the world. But remember, if you start 
a discussion with some like-minded individuals, maybe friends, relatively close uh, to reach so that you can meet regularly, to think through the basic thing is what can I do to become happier and healthier and make the world a happier, healthier place? What can we do? What do we have to look at and explore? And how can we go on this joint journey? There's a very, very important distinction between what my organization, Local Future, says and most of the Western organizations that have become too hyper-individualistic and where we're, you know, we're, we're um, so pressured to essentially go at everything alone. We're so cut off. The cutting off is one of the main reasons for depression, one of the main reasons for anger. So connecting to others now, to make it even more magical, is when you consciously connect to others and to nature, to the plants, to the animals, to the wild, being down by the sea. And I urge people to think of doing like a DIY vision quest, which are becoming very popular, but often are very expensive. So you could choose to go out with your little core group, ideally intergenerational, bring children, try to be somewhere relatively wild. It doesn't have to be, you know, it could be, you know, even in a less wild place, but with the, you know, understanding that you want to try to encourage everyone including the children to spend some time alone in nature and with the brief of just expanding their sense of of opening their heart to try to feel connected to the living world to just quiet the mind a bit and you know not just be out there playing football and competing but actually being told you know if you learn to shut down your chattering analytical mind and just still your body a little bit to feel connection and to feel that amazing feeling of being part of something much larger than yourself and in that you feel both expanded and you feel genuinely expanded basically which is very different from what people believe is overconfident people who go around, you know, looking so incredibly, you know, secure and great and big, but almost always this comes from a sense of insecurity, a need to prove yourself, to prove that you're better than, you know, to prove that you're, you know, so clever or whatever. So I think that those are lessons I learned, you know, from Ladakh and that are also now, thank goodness, you know, the awareness, the consciousness is growing in the West and it's just so exciting to see how many people are waking up. You know, I've seen angered prisoners who've been helped to work in the garden, cook together, eat together, and who have been transformed in months. I've seen juvenile delinquents taken out into nature and encouraged to feel that expansion of self in, more, in a more meditative way and to develop a few skills, you know, to cook together, to be together in a meaningful, heartfelt way, where another key element of all this is that we've been so cut off from each other that we're incredibly fearful of being ourselves with others. We feel all the time we have to have this appearance of perfection 
So a key in all of this in the West is to be willing to be vulnerable, is to be willing to say, I'm having a serious problem with my daughter, with my eating disorder, with my fear of, you know, this or that, you know, the, that the willingness to be vulnerable. Again, there's awareness growing of all this, but very few people are linking it to how localizing is a way in which we start structurally to create the interdependence and the closeness that allows for all of this. And you are absolutely right that part of this needs to be ruralization instead of urbanization. And the ruralization that I see that can really work and is working already now, you can find certain small towns that are being more and more inhabited by people who recognize the fundamental importance of deep community and connection to nature. And those places are beginning to become, you know, thriving places. Because yes, most people would prefer to live in a town or a village that gives them access both to nature and to a vibrant culture, to meaningful exchange with other people, to also, you know, some of the, you know, the music, the theater, the dancing together, rebuilding a participatory, cultural, um, rich uh, town is something that's, it is happening. But, you know, I, I just want us all to engage in big picture activism so it can happen much faster to many more places and very soon. Beautifully said. The, it's getting darker. The, you're glowing yeah. more. You're bringing out a beautiful, wise experience for us all. For us all, I'm sure you'll be mesmerizing many people at this point. So, um, now that was beautiful. And yeah, it's right. The balance. It really is about balance, as I said before. Not just about trade, but and but also public, private, left, right. Uh, play, being playful and serious in your life. Nature. Um, you know. To, to, Exactly, yeah. embracing your own inner divine masculinity and femininity. Absolutely, that's right up there. And that sort of speaks to my spirituality because people get a little bit offended or turned off by the word, but really to me, it just means honoring my connection with connection and all those layers I spoke about before. You could look at it just ecologically if you wanted, but then you could go quantum physically, metaphysically, the whole lot. That we are connected with family planetary solar system whatever there's all these beautiful amazing layers of spirituality and we should be respecting that i also would like to say about that i really think the more i look at all the various spiritual traditions and religions even the message in most of them is the oneness of life and that the connecting fabric is love you know the energy of love which is the energy of connection and, you know, there are many Christians who understand that God is love. You know, God isn't some white man with a white beard in the sky. It is actually that energy of connection, of love and caring, caring for others as you would care for yourself. And really, in Buddhism, that's the basic teaching too. It's about compassion and wisdom. It's about understanding that we are part of everything else and that we are deeply connected. So I think... Um, there's a way in which if people just had access to this sort of holistic picture that we're talking about, I think there would be a lot of people who would be supportive of what we're saying. 
So I just hope we can get this message out more widely. And I hope I could encourage people to read my new book. It's called Local is Our Future. And it, should, it will be out in about a month. And you can order it from our website, uh, which is localfutures.org. Excellent. Well, um, I would just like to add a couple of other things. The, the need for people to heal, as I said before, and to integrate themselves and face their shadow, integrate the shadow, deal with the real issues in their lives can be done very quickly through meditation and introspection and, and really sitting down. I'm a hypnopsychotherapist, so I understand what self-hypnosis is. I've been practicing it for over a decade, 15 years. And seeing how simple, simple it is to administer or self-administer hypnopsychotherapy, it's there. We can all do it. We can rewire ourselves and change ourselves according to what we want. And then that's why I'm a big fan or advocate of bringing in um, some of these more advanced uh, healing techniques, which ironically are going back to more plant-based medicines using those natural psychotropics, which are showing phenomenal results with healing all types of mental disorders that are, are notoriously difficult to, to resolve. We, we do need a basic um, emancipation of the sickness of our society. Again, it's a cultural or a collective existential crisis the crisis of lack of connection and meaning. It's a very serious one. And there are plant medicines and, and uh, connecting with elders and, and, the, and our communities and having established um, support uh, systems in place to really help facilitate this process of emancipation, of, of healing and uh, of development in ways that we, we've, never, um, we've never really seen for a long, long time. So I think that's about it. I'll just tap on that last bit where you said, yes, be the change, but please translate it into not just small picture activism, which a lot of people do. They've got their particular gripe with the system. They've been affected in whatever particular way, and that's their focus. I would encourage everybody to think larger. This is a very large perspective we're talking about right now. Not everybody's going to agree with what I've said or what you've said, Helena, but we are more all we are more or less over the target. And I really would help and encourage people to understand this is the conversation. This is the focus. It's not perfectly this, but it is about localization, decentralization, and the honoring of the individual freedom and community freedom that we really need to move forward. So you've spoken about your website. Yeah. Can I also just add that I think it's really important that people understand that in promoting localization, we are not promoting a top-down formula telling people, you be this, you're going to do this. No, it's precisely about recovering that diversity. It's about recovering genuine individualism, where people are much more free to be uniquely themselves instead of conforming this top-down image of who you should be. And as people start relating to each other in a more human-scale way, everybody meets their need to be famous. Everybody becomes famous in the sense that they are known, they are recognized for who they are, they have a name, and their voices are heard. This is incredibly important. And so we're not imposing a formula. And in fact, I often say localism is the ism that could end all isms. You know, in other words, no, we're not talking about imposing anything. We're talking about empowering and adapting to diversity. 
And we're also recovering community services as well, the, the celebration of people caring for each other. Right now we reward CEOs of banks who are ripping this, the, the wealth out of our communities and going, yeah, congratulations, you get a heap of money for that. We need to start celebrating our nurses and peace officers and social workers and mentors and yeah, you know elders and all these people who are really caring about um, the, the needs of our communities. That is a super important transition that we need to make. We, we need to build, open up the economy, open up local economies to accommodate all of that regeneration of the essential services we all, we all need and start celebrating it, not just on a philosophical and, uh, um, and, and an ethical level, but a, a, an economic level as well. So, Helena, I did say I wanted this to go for about 45 minutes. <laughs> and it's no wonder last time we went, we did go for about an hour and a half. I'm not sure how long it's been, but it is just an, um, a, a phenomenal conversation, a very important one. And I'm really glad that we have gone this long and we're able to unpack so much good stuff. If I could have ended it on so many beautiful statements that you've made, but uh, you've talked about your website, you've talked about the, your book, Final statement, what have you got to, um, uh, is there anything else that you've missed? Well, just that I want to be really clear that I'm seeing that when people wake up to this bigger picture, they see that what they need to do right now to make themselves and their own children feel happier, more healthy, more energized, more positive, have more faith in themselves and faith in humanity, faith in the future. What's so wonderful is that what we're offering is a lot of information, a lot of stories that can help you on a journey that's going to be the best thing you can do for yourself and your children and amazingly for the planet, for all of humanity. So I really do hope you'll look at these stories and that this information, it's being buried, it's being hidden from you. But if you look more carefully, if you become activist in seeking out that story and all that information, then you'll find that you're on the path to both personal and genuinely planetary healing. We may be in a lot of trouble environmentally, we may see climate deteriorating, but whatever we do, taking these steps right now will create the conditions for, as I say, greater happiness and for dealing with crises which may be coming down our way. So I urge you not only to look for that information for yourself, but what I'm calling big picture activism is that you commit to getting that information out because we need to use alternative channels to share it. We're not going to get it out right now on television or even many of the big uh, uh, websites and so on in, on the web. We're not going to get it in academia. We're not getting it from scientists. We're not getting it in our school books. So virtually every avenue of knowledge has been colonized. Help us become part of a real decolonization movement, a real picture, big picture activism. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, sticking by, the, uh, you know, sitting with us for this whole time. And I really look forward to doing this again. Thank you. And I, what I'll just add one more thing is just 
all that all you need to do is achieve that is a simple light switch of of separation to connection yeah. that's yeah. all it comes Absolutely. down to absolutely all right we'll, ca- we'll catch up soon and thank you very much